You're listening to the Biomed Central Podcast. Today we're talking to Dr. Maria Barnes, a qualitative research associate at the University of Bristol. Maria, please tell us a little bit about your research. We're part of a much larger research program that is funded by the NIHR, and our aim is to try and lower suicide rates. Our strand of it at Bristol is very much to do with the recession and how it affects people, and that is often, unfortunately, seems to be a rise in suicide rates. So we wanted to look at why that happens in more detail. How does economic recession impact upon rates of psychological distress or suicidal behaviour or self-harm? Well, economic recessions, uh, they're usually associated by increases in unemployment and economic hardship. And those are associated with rises in suicide and suicide attempts. So, for example, during the last recession, 2008 onwards, Uh, Suicide rates increased in most European and American countries, uh, especially those where they had the higher level of job loss. Um, And the same for English regions, with the highest rises in unemployment, they had the largest increases in suicide as well. Um, And in Ireland, the same, five years of recession led to increase in suicide in men and actual self-harm in both sexes. Um, Often recessions, they come along with political measures, like austerity, with the idea of speeding up economic recovery. But recent research has indicated that some austerity measures have adversely affected suicide rates. Um, But there is some evidence that government spending on active labour market programmes, like in the Scandinavian countries, it it can mitigate the impact of unemployment on the risk of suicide. So that's obviously we're very much interested in that area. Is there historical evidence of previous economic recessions? We do actually have some historical data, not a great amount, as you would imagine. But we we do know that from the Great Depression, from the 1930s, suicide rates did go up then. Uh, But obviously, as time goes on and the collection of statistics gets better and more consistent, we we have better data. But uh, it did go up in the 1992 recession. And obviously, we have much better data now for the the, the most recent one. Are people with pre-existing mental health problems more vulnerable to debt and other financial difficulties? Yes, is the short answer. There's a big established body of work out there that reports people with pre-existing mental health problems. They're the most vulnerable to debt or losing their job and other financial difficulties. So does financial difficulty have a particular impact on those who have self-harmed? Or could financial difficulty be considered a risk factor for self-harm? Yes, both. This is a really high risk group of people. People who self-harm with intent, as it's known, that's the common parlance for it now, are 25% more likely to do it again in the next 12 months after they've been discharged from hospital. Um, And remember, that could mean a completed suicide. Um, So they are a really high-risk group of people. People who had self-harm in our study tended to have a lot more complex long-term problems. um, But by and large, they had been managing okay until a particular financial problem with welfare changes or small debt acted as the final straw for them to trigger their self-harm. For example, the bailiff calling um, about council tax arrears could lead someone to overdose. How did you select the participants in your study? And is this part of a larger study? Well, firstly, this is part of a large programme of research, which includes research centres in Oxford and Manchester, funded by the NIHR. Um, And our overall aim is is to lower suicide rates. And there's one University of Bristol strand, and this is this one. It's qualitative in nature. And it's aimed to try and understand what it is about the recession that affects suicide rates. Uh, There's plenty of evidence at population epidemiological level out there about them, but there's little to nothing um, actually asking the people who are affected. So we asked them. 
and the people that we asked, we, we interviewed three different groups of people. So we interviewed people who had turned up at emergency departments, um, having self-harmed with intent, which means serious self-harm, who cited financial problems as part of their reason for being there. And we worked with two cities and two busy city centre hospitals with their psychiatric team to actually recruit people. But we also wanted to hear from people who were affected by the same sort of problems. So they'd had benefit or debt or employment, housing, those sorts of things, but who had not self-harmed. And obviously we wanted to look at similarities and differences between those two groups. But to try and get more context, we also interviewed frontline staff um, from the statutory and voluntary organisations that often give support to these sorts of groups. So, for example, counselling services, free debt advice agencies, job centres, and we, we call them service providers. So sort of shorthand really throughout I, I call them people who self-harmed the community group and service providers if that makes it a bit clearer. How representative is your sample of the the general population in the United Kingdom? Well I suppose as in all qualitative work the intention is it, it's not to be representative of the general population but but to understand in greater depth a particular group and issue um, and in our case obviously we wanted to find out more about those who self-harmed due to economic hardship we did recruit in these two cities, so it was in the north and also in the southwest, and made obviously a very different sorts of support available to those who self-harmed. And they were also likely to have different experiences of the recession, um, so that gave it obviously quite a big range. And obviously we also interviewed the service providers uh, and the people who hadn't self-harmed in both cities as well. What were some of the common experiences of the people you interviewed? For both groups, that's the self-harmed people and the community group, it, it was their difficulty in accessing the information and the services that they needed. So a lot of people didn't know where to go for help, or if they did, they didn't necessarily get the help they needed for the benefit, debt or employment issues that they had. And really importantly, the provision of services for them is very confusing, and the navigation through the support system could be really difficult for a lot of people. And this view was reinforced by service providers working on the front line with service users. So people who didn't know what benefits they were allowed or what they should be claiming um, and they often felt slightly judged by people in the, the job center um, so there would often this feeling of you needed to know what you needed to know before you could know it so they tend to go around in circles a bit um, they'd often get unreliable or out-of-date information lots of different departments and the different benefit agencies for different issues having to chase information um, a very important point was not being able to understand the letters or the information from various benefits agencies um, or, or to be able to fill in the forms. I don't know if anybody's seen these, but they are incredibly difficult. I, I've struggled. And there's often very low levels of literacy within vulnerable populations. So interpreting that information is going to be very difficult. You know, there were certain organisations that could help with this, but only if you knew where to go in the first place. And there were several people who self-harmed who spoke about only being referred to mental health organisations that can help filling in forms, etc., but only after they'd self-harmed. People could be referred to an organisation but have to wait for a really long time. So one woman spoke about still waiting for her appointment with a counselling service 10 months after she'd actually self-harmed. You know, people spoke uh, about actually not being referred, asking their GP, and it's still not actually happening. Help appealing for benefit sanctions tends to be only given to people who are living in social housing provided by the local council. So if you are going for the fitness to work test and find that despite the fact that you have bad mental health problems, you are deemed fit to work and then you're put on job seekers allowance, um, which is 
extremely stringent uh, benefits. You, you have to show that, uh, give evidence and try for several, sometimes up to 20 jobs a week. And people often would talk about this would be the point when their self-harm was triggered. If they were in debt, it was often under £1,000. So we're not talking about a lot of money, but obviously if you don't have much, that's still a lot of money. And if they got threatening letters from organisations they were in debt to, it could really scare and confuse people quite often by the point they were contacted. They didn't even know who they were actually in debt to anymore. So they were very common experiences from the two groups. For example, the people who had self-harmed, they reported really having very, very low levels of informal networks. So friends and family just weren't really there. And if they were there, they weren't necessarily the right sort of support and uh, that they required. And it was just very obvious in comparison to the community group who, who often talked about being able to get by, for example, because their mum helped them out with with a bill or the childcare, or they had friends that could go and sleep on their sofa when their money ran out before the end of the two weeks. Um, so for me, it was quite stark, that difference, um, because informal networks, they can really mitigate the effects of money worries and mental health problems. Um, you know, the people who self-harmed reported much more self-reliance. They didn't ask for help, they didn't feel that they should. It would, I'd often hear, well, it's up to me to sort it out, no one's going to sort it out for me. And that wasn't just the men, which I know traditionally is, is a very male behaviour to not ask for help, but the women as well. Um, you know, and you could say, obviously, if you don't have a network, then they're not going to be the ones sort of chivvying you along, guiding you to go and get support. So I think that probably broadly covers what the main similarities and differences were. What were the key concerns and issues that emerged from service users and service providers in the study? Well, over and above everything else, it was all about unmet need. So all of the groups expressed very similar things. Um, and basically what they wanted was practical advice to help them move on from their immediate crisis and actually manage their financial situation. You know, what you've got is, is obviously you've got people who are often have emotional worries as well but what they really wanted was concrete financial and debt advice that would help them and so when people are at their most vulnerable they do find it the most difficult to access the support they need and, and they'd often talk about really wanting an advocate they also wanted to know that it was it was correct information was up to date was reliable from a reliable source and that it was timely you know it's important to catch people early on and this wish was strongest in all those who had self-harmed, but, but also the people who were in crisis amongst the community sample as well. And, and it was very much backed up by all the service providers we spoke to, you know, who said that it was really obvious from the people that they saw that this is exactly what was needed, that there was a gap there to try and guide people on when they were at their most vulnerable. Uh, you've mentioned the aim being to reduce suicide rates. Uh, so what are the implications of your results for future service provision or policy? It's, it's local and national, I suppose. So in terms of locally, local authorities uh, really need to regularly review and update their information advice that's available to them in the area, because quite often it goes out of date quite quickly. So making sure that you're actually referring people on to somewhere that exists for a start. When employers are going to make redundancies, which obviously keeps happening, um, they should all know about local support agencies and be able to pass that information on to their employees. I did speak to quite a few people who were about to be or had been made redundant and the worries that they had about what was going to happen to them and not knowing how to actually access that information. Um, in terms of nationally, 
written communications. They could involve service user proofreading um, to make it more understandable. So how easily can service providers like the ones you interviewed in your study access the results of studies like yours to inform their own service provision? We did actually uh, put together a policy a document that was sent out to everybody who took part with very clear bullet points about, um, for example, like these implications uh, that we just spoke about. So we try to make it very much within the school, we try to make it so that any evidence that we have is applied as soon as possible to the appropriate agencies, support people, so they can actually use it if they so choose. Obviously, we only have so much influence. To read and hear more science stories, subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter at Biomed Central or visit our blogs at blogs.biomedcentral.com. All of our published research articles are also openly accessible on biomedcentral.com. Thank you for listening.